and during some of the toughest times, I have a little piece of paper in my wallet that I keep all the time, even to this moment, uh, of different things that I that mean to me, different sayings that mean a lot to me, uh, things that I strive for, recognizing my responsibility to give back. Reoccurring mantra I got into in college where I would just say, I'm going to break the mold. Two days after my second injury, my dad flew out to Indiana and we drove home. Went right up to my room, slept for a day, and then I woke up the next morning, I sprayed me in my wall. No quitting me. I remember, you know, there is no quitting me and I won't, you know, I won't give up. The number one thing you gotta remember is your transferring energy. And whatever energy you got is the energy the viewers are gonna have. You are listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson, where we talk with experts of craft about their journey and what they have intentionally done to be their best self. As we talk with them, the hope is that we uncover intentional gems that you can use in your life. Now, let's kick it over to Brian to introduce this week's guest. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Intentional Performers podcast. I am Brian Levinson. Excited to have you with us for another great episode today. But before we get to today's guest, I want to let you know how you might be able to help us out at the podcast. And one of the things we talk about in today's episode is the idea of value and how we provide value to others and what do we expect in return. And it's a really fascinating discussion. So one of the ways that you can add value to me and this podcast is by sharing this conversation. Share it on social media. If you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, uh, share this conversation. It really does help us and helps myself continue to build out our audience. So really grateful to those of you that have already done so. And if you haven't, we would be appreciative to you if you would do that in the future. Also, if you like today's episode or any of our past ones, go over to iTunes, write us a review. It really does make a big difference. And we have found that a lot of people find us from those iTunes reviews. So please go over there, write us a review. It means the world to us. Now to today's guest. Haleli Azalai is somebody who I think you're really going to enjoy learning from. She's super wise and really thinks about words and how we communicate deeply. And she's very intentional. And I love people that are thoughtful and aren't afraid to challenge the status quo when it comes to how we are communicating with each other. And she's an author, a speaker, a facilitator. She's a leadership development strategist. And really at her core, she's an expert in communication skills and emotional intelligence. She has a great podcast called Talent Grow, which I've listened to. My favorite episode was with Dan Pink, the author, who also was a podcast guest on our podcast. And her two books are called Employee Development on a Shoestring and Strength to Strength, How Working from Your Strengths Can Help You Lead a More Fulfilling Life. So Haleli is a truth teller. She is somebody who is not full of BS and she's honest. And I think that's a value that we all could use these days. So I know you're going to love this conversation with Haleli. And without further ado, I present to you, Haleli Azalai. Haleli, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We got introduced by your brother. So we got to give Yovi a shout out. And I was recently at an event 
and I saw him and he was my first boss out of college. And uh, he, he looks exactly the same, at least from my perspective and in my eyes. And so I went right up to him and I said, hey, it's Brian Levitt. So he's like, oh, how you been? And we caught up and during that conversation, he said, you got to meet my sister and chat with her. It sounds like you are are passionate about similar things. And uh, we then had a phone call, which I think lasted at least an hour, but probably could have <laughs> lasted two. And so I'm excited to learn from you today and, and find a little bit more about your journey and your mindset and, and all that good stuff. And so while I know a little bit about Yovi's background, and you gave me a glimpse of it on our phone call, where I'd love to start is to get a sense of your upbringing and what life was like for you as a kid. Yeah, so shout out to Yovi. He's pretty awesome. Um, I'm glad we connected. And one of the things that I guess is definitely different about my childhood from some of the ways that many of the people I've met over the years have grown up is that I had to deal with an international move when I was 12 years old. So I grew up, I was born and uh, raised in Israel and um, until age 12. And at that point, my family moved for business purposes to the Montgomery County area of the suburbs of Washington, D.C. And as you can imagine, that was pretty significant change that guided a lot of uh, insights about myself and also probably many life choices. Um, we can start there, but I can also tell you things about earlier childhood that I thought probably would have created a significant impact on how I, how I am. Yeah, I'd love to know what life is like for you before you get to the U.S. and what it's like growing up in Israel and how that shaped your identity. Yeah. So I would say one of the biggest influences in my life was my dad, who um, unfortunately passed away eight years ago. He, um, he was an interesting character and infused a lot of my life philosophy and, and uh, gave a really strong example for us, for our whole family, about what it's like to be a self-made person and to have just the highest level of integrity and ambition and drive um, and commitment to doing what you think is right. He was um, a fighter pilot in the Israeli Air Force, which I don't know if you know a lot about it, but people who are in that arena high, highly regard that. That's not easy. It's, very, it's not easy to be selected even. Um, so it means that he's of a certain type of intelligence and capability, and so I'm pretty proud of him and that. Um, that meant that we moved a lot and we moved, we lived in small um, communities in Israel, which is already very small and kind of um, out of the way. Um, and I think that growing up in very small communities, but also moving, I, I think we, we calculated, I calculated that by the time I was 14, I had moved 12 times, including that one leap over the ocean. So I never really had like a group of friends and a school and a community that I always belonged to. I always was the outsider. And I think that that impacted a lot. Also, my dad, you know, he, he left high school when he got frustrated with things that he saw were wrong. He went into um, the Air Force when a lot of the odds were against him. And then he left the Air Force when he was about two years short of becoming a general. 
And my grandfather freaked out, like, why would you do that? Just hang in there. You're going to have a lifetime pension and the title, the honor and everything. And, you know, at the time, without getting into the details, from what I understand, my dad really just thought that the, the direction that they wanted him to go in did not match his goals. And it was um, not purposeful. It was not the best use of his gifts. It was wrong in his opinion. And so he was living, he was willing to leave all of that instead of just staying and kind of putting his head down and just doing what's necessary to just get to that next milestone. He left it all and he went into the civilian workforce. And um, he started he started working within a company that eventually was the company that brought us to the U.S. And even in the U.S., he um, demonstrated that whole idea of you, you stick to your commitments, but you stick to your integrity more um, and, and was willing to kind of leave everything another time later when a leader was doing something that in his mind was lacking integrity or, or just um, that didn't allow him to do what was right. So my childhood was growing up in that kind of a family, but also growing up where I always had to adjust to new surroundings and new friends and new environments. Lily, it's, it's interesting. I wrote down quit slash commit and the commitment and discipline that he would need to rise to the ranks of the military had to require discipline and commitment, moving your family around, um, the commitment to his family and the job and willing to move to a foreign country. Yet there's three examples it sounded like of where he would walk away. Uh, you mentioned high school, you mentioned the military, and then it sounds like in business as well at some yeah. point. So talk about maybe, we, we talked about polarities uh, when we were having a conversation uh, before we recorded, uh, you know, a little while back. Talk about that idea of like when to quit and when to stay committed and sort of stay with things and, and how you think about that. Yeah, I've certainly been challenged with that in my own life. And I think that many people find that very difficult. Now, of course, I wish there was a formula or, you know, just some surefire way to offer for people to know what to do in those situations. And I really don't think it exists. But I think that having um, a clear understanding of your own values and your own goals and priorities allows you to make the best possible decision. And I don't think he made any of those decisions lightly. I want to make sure that that's clear. He doesn't just sort of impulsively walk away. And I, I think that that's a very big mistake. But that willingness to do it means that you always stay active-minded and examine every situation on its own merits and in comparison to the core of who you are and what you believe is right. Because... Even something that has been right and was the right thing can change, right? You, the, life is dynamic and things change. So you, when you have kind of a finger on the pulse of your compass um, and guide your life and your decisions from that, you're always able to stay independent enough to be able to make a very difficult decision and compare the pros and cons of staying versus leaving. And I think that in those cases, you're more likely to make a decision that you can live with. I sometimes talk about, you know, decision-making. I've, um, I've written about this recently and talked about it recently. It shows up a lot, like I said, um, where you have to make a decision that's just so scary because it's so 
weighty. You know, it means a lot one way or another. And you're scared because none of us really ever has all of the information that can tell you what's, what's guaranteed to succeed. Like we, that, that's not how life is. But um, something else that I've learned, and I believe that I've been informed by, by him, although I, I crystallized it after he was already gone, so I can't ask him, um, is the idea of also sometimes you can think about what's the worst that can happen in each situation. And what would be a regret that it would have in each situation? And a lot of times I think that that's very clarifying because when you think about, well, can I live with that regret or can I not live with it? And I think that in many of these kinds of decisions, there is one regret that's worse and that, or that you, can, you can't live with or you can't really reverse. Yeah, and I, I think that that helps. It's, it's very appropriate for the times we're living in where people are having to make decisions about laying people off. People are having to make decisions and thinking about what they do with the coronavirus and how they are interacting with their family and interacting with work. I think people are having to make decisions right now that are not clear and that are not 100% guaranteed. And they're trying to do their best they can while dealing with an unknown. And for me, it's a, uh, an analogy that's actually analogous to life. I mean, we, none of us really have anything guaranteed. We like to think we control everything and that, that, that we get to decide, but we don't get to decide when we leave this earth. We don't get to decide often what the weather is outside. I mean, yeah, there's all kinds of elements that are out of our control. And so it's just interesting as I'm hearing you talk, you're sort of sort of mentioning, hey, it's very rare that we know 100% this is the right decision, but we trust our values and our values probably drive our instincts and our behavior. And then you can make the best decision possible while also understanding what the potential uh, consequences are from, for making that decision as well. Yeah. And I think that, you know, from, from talking to you and from listening to you on some of your other episodes, you, you are a person who's driven and you're a person who's willing to take risks to go after what you think is right. And you're willing to take the risk that it might not work out. And I am like that. My dad was definitely like that. I'm lucky to have chosen a spouse who's like that, but I've met enough people. I'm related to some people who are not like that, or at least that's not what their natural instinct is to take the risk, even though it's not guaranteed. So it seems, I think it's clarifying for me and you. And I hope sometimes when I, when I teach this, I hope to reach some of the people that for whom that's not so obvious because a lot of times I see people that, Actually, in the face of a decision like that, they often choose indecision. You know, it's almost like they, they choose um, ambivalence or they choose inaction. They just sort of, because they don't really feel like they have all their ducks in a row or because there's no fail-proof, you know, risk-free cho- choice, then they kind of choose not to make a choice. But that is a choice by itself. So many people just sort of, kind of live in default mode, you know, they just sort of move forward without a decision and they are not consciously choosing. They're not intentional as your podcast name is. They're not intentional about 
the choice they're making, but they are making a choice. So I hope to shine that light to say, you know, that regret, I think, helps with that the most. Because if you commit to thinking about it deeply and to considering that too, then sometimes even though that on the pro side, it's not clear, that regret that you'll have later about never doing anything. You know, I, um, I moved to California four and a half years ago, and that was a huge move for our family. Like there was absolutely no guarantees. It was just something we wanted to do for a long, long time. But, you know, like, well, what about, what about if we don't like it? Or what about if it doesn't work out? But what about our, you know, our friends and our colleagues and our network and our family that we're leaving behind? You know, there's like, it's scary, you know, and, and there is a risk and it can hurt. But when you think about like, okay, on my deathbed or, you know, at some point later, when I think to myself, I always wanted to and I never tried versus I tried and it sucked, you know, and, and then I moved somewhere else or I did something different. Like, which one would you, which one could you live with? Which one would be reversible? Well, I can reverse from a mistake once I know it's a mistake, but I can't ever reverse the what if that I never tried. I can never reverse that. You hit the nail on the head. Originally, this podcast was called Beyond the Surface. And about 40 episodes in, I decided to change it to Intentional Performers. And the reason I changed it was not because of me, but it was because I kept hearing this pattern over and over again about people stepping into intentional lives and making intentional decisions that definitely led to mistakes and failure and all kinds of stuff. But they felt at peace because there was some intention that they were living with. And, and that gave them peace of mind. Uh, you've talked a lot about dad. Talk about the rest of the family and, and what else you were surrounded by from an environment standpoint. And let's stay with before you're 12 years old. And then, you know, we'll get into the transitioning to the U.S. and what that was like from a cultural perspective and uh, something that you did not intentionally choose to do that you, you had to do. So start with uh, the rest of your family and just give me a fuller picture of what your environment was growing up. Um, you know, Israel is a country that was rebuilt. You know, very few people had stayed in Israel all the years um, of its existence. Many people had to, were driven away and came back intentionally <laughs> against very, very difficult odds. And my family was one of the early fam resettlers of Israel after the diaspora, after Jews were kicked out pretty much. Um, and I'm very proud that like my great grandparents on my dad's side were, were there to build, um, you know, to build the state before the statehood in 1948. My, um, and my mom's parents came when they were, you know, like 18, kind of, um, uh, what would be the word, you know, just very idealistic, you know, and came and, and left their lives in Europe. In, in Eastern Europe and came to Israel and built it. And I mean, malaria and swamps and um, attacks from, you know, warring tribes and just like, you know, many children died before reaching whatever age of, you know, in childhood. I mean, just terrible life, you know, and they chose that because they believed that, you know, being free and, and rebuilding their homeland would be something that would be worth the risk. So certainly something that was in the narrative. Um, my mom's mom left her family. And then a few years later, they were decimated by 
um, the Nazis. Um, and she always had guilt about that, that she left them behind. But she tried very hard to convince them, come with me, come with me, and they didn't want to. So it's a very interesting, I think it's an interesting narrative. Anybody growing up in Israel is surrounded by that. It's not just in my family. This whole, you know, do you just sort of play it safe or go for, you know, bold? Do you take risks or not? And do you believe in freedom, you know, and, and living your best life and in, and in making something out of nothing? Um, my, uh, so yeah, I told you about my dad and some of his choices he made. You know, my mom... Um, and my dad met when they were 16 or something like this and they became sweethearts and they had the most amazing love affair and the most amazing relationship. I am so fortunate. So, you know, unfortunately it was truncated by cancer, but they, they were just going strong and like best friends worked together all the years. I mean, always did everything together, uh, just fulfilled each other's every need and in the most respectful and, and beautiful, loving way. And I, I believe I'm sure that that had a major, major impact on me growing up, feeling secure in my home and, you know, in, in relationships and understanding what a loving relationship looks like and that it takes work and communication. Um, so we felt pretty safe, even though we moved around a lot, you know, in my home, I always felt very good and safe. And my childhood was, was very good. It's weird because I always find it interesting how people tell stories from their childhood. And whenever I kind of try to, you know, dust off stories, I can't really even remember much of my childhood. And I don't even know what that means, but I assure you, it's not repression of terrible things. I ultimately had such an amazing childhood, but I don't have very many vivid early, early memories. Um, I was kind of a tomboy. I didn't really like doing things that your, you know, girls are supposed to do or that you're expected to do. I like doing my own thing. I would climb trees. I'd walk around barefoot. I'd like collect frogs with the boys and scare the girls with them and that kind of stuff. You know, I mean, I have memories of that. I grew up when we left the Air Force. We moved into another very small community, a farming community. We were externals. We were living in a rented house in a, in a community that was uh, where people had farms and, you know, like either orange orchards or they would grow flowers or they would tend to animals, or whatever. And that was very sheltered and beautiful, too. I would walk to my school every morning from my home with my, ki with my friends. And when we came back, there were orchards on both sides of the road. And there were these huge ficus trees with like those air roots, you know, that look like Tarzan ropes. <laughs> um, so after school, we would climb up into one of the trees. And each time somebody took um, turns going and fetching some oranges, which now in hindsight, I realized was not very nice to do because we were stealing. But as kids, we had no idea that we were doing that and not, not our intention. There were just so many oranges right there on the trees. So yeah, I mean, like, kind of carefree and lovely. Um, so I... I never, I always got along with everyone, but I never had tons of friends. I always had sort of like one or two best friends that I stuck like glue to and stayed very loyal to. And I'm still like that today. And the transition to the U S how vivid is that transition? Um, you know, you're coming to a new country. Uh, what was that like for you, uh, in that transition? Extremely, extremely vivid and impactful. Well, I, you don't know what it's like to be a 12 year old girl, but maybe you can imagine or have met some that is an incredibly difficult time in 
any child and certainly a girl's uh, life. You, you start to form your own social identity. You start to begin to separate from your family and be your own self. You might even start rebelling a little bit. You've got the whole like puberty going on and boys and all this. Um, and then to sort of rip me out in the middle of all of that and put me in totally different environment. I did So when we were told we would be leaving, I was extremely distraught and did not want to leave. I was so tied and, and close to my community and my friends, and I never, ever wanted to leave. I didn't see this as like an exciting thing. Um, and I think that that's normal for someone that age. So when we moved, I was in a completely different environment. Um, different language, different customs, no one that we knew around, none of the family, we were so close-knit with our family. Like I saw my grandparents every single weekend growing up. I, huge, and I saw my extended family every couple of months, you know, where there was like a big holiday or a wedding or a bar mitzvah or, you know, a bris or some event. I, I knew my cousins really well, my second cousins, you know, we didn't have a big family, but we had a big family in the sense that many branches of the trees were connected very closely um, and just completely ripped out of all of that and put into this new environment where it's just all foreign. Um, and you have no support system. You have no one that you can kind of cry on their shoulder. Like that, that's hard. Very, very hard. Um, I survived it. I think it made me stronger that I went through it and I survived it. But I think to some degree, the having moved a lot and always having to adjust to new environments probably prepared me for it to some degree. My own sense of independence, my, I, in my personality, I don't have a strong need to always be aligned with everybody else and to do what everybody else is doing or just sort of follow the norms. I've never, I've kind of always been a little bit of a nonconformist. I'm sure informed by my dad too. So I, I had some of the, the needed tools, I guess, to help me weather that, but it was not easy. Coming from Israel, uh, religion, what, what was the role of religion in your house? And uh, I would be curious to just know if you have a spiritual framework as an adult versus what you were brought up with and, and what all that looked like for you and, and how you think about it. So... Israel is the Jewish state, and my experience is that most Israelis are not very religious, um, pretty secular, actually. And so a lot of times when people don't know anything about Israel, they don't know that. Um, there are segments of the population that are much more religious, of course. But I grew up uh, completely, completely secular. Religion never played any kind of a role in my life. I learned much more about Judaism when I moved to the States and interacted with Jewish Americans than I ever learned in Israel. I had never even stepped foot in a synagogue, I think, my whole life. Um, well, my parents were really atheists. Um, and I, so religion just was never there. I definitely have, you know, in Israel, they teach you things about the religion you learn the bible and you learn the holidays that are you know the jewish holidays and so on mainstream education is based also in jewish education but um i so i always had a connection to judaism as a culture um you know like an ethnic identity and a traditional 
identity. You know, this is, this is my people. This is, you know, the traditions of my family for generations. So from that perspective, I certainly, we, we celebrated many of the holidays and things like that, but not the religious aspect of them. And I'm, though I don't talk about it very publicly in, in general, but I'm still an atheist and um, I, religion does not play a role in my life. Any spiritual spirituality or how you think about spirituality outside of religion, or is that is it sort of aligned for you in, in that regard? Well, I'm starting to learn about how I could use the word spiritual in a way that it has integrity for me, but I would say that in majority of my life, I also didn't, I just sort of uh, rejected that word because it meant to me uh, mystical or religious. Mm. Um, I actually am guided by a deeply held philosophy that also I was fortunate enough to be brought up with and my parents held it, my dad especially, um, that, that says that you know, life is for living and um, it's good and you're here for, the, for, for this life. There is no other life or anything else. And there is no other power that controls you or that tells you what to do that you should use morality. And morality is super important, but morality comes from you. And um, be in integrity and honor your own individuality and others and allow people to live freely according to their own choosing so long as they don't interfere with other people's ability to also choose their own life freely. So that, that I don't know if that's spiritual or not, but it is a guiding philosophy and a morality that definitely informs everything that I do and how I think about the world that I try to teach my kids too. And I, I, because of it, I honor other people and their beliefs. You know, I, respect it so long as they don't try to infringe on my freedom you know that's where that it becomes problematic and unfortunately i think that many religions you know organized religions have many aspects to them that are definitely um freedom reducing and or you know manipulate or 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 you know tell you that certain people are good and certain people are bad and that kind of stuff like that i don't subscribe to it and i don't want people to force me into anything like that there are some common threads though as we sort of wrap your your childhood up you know self-made having a purpose integrity morals be willing to take risks step into the best version of you at like 16 17 18 years old what was your vision for where you thought you were going or you can even go into college like what what was your vision for yourself and the life that you had lived then? Like, what were you, what were you interested in? I fell into dancing when I was 14 and fell in love with it. I was <laughs> um, guided by my teacher to do ballroom dancing, which at 14 in the eighties was not something 14 year olds did. And I fell in love with it. And I was spending pretty much every free minute of my high school life where, you know, beyond just doing school and work that I had to do some work um, in the dance studio. And I started even teaching dance and competing in dance. So when I was a teenager, that was my life. And I'm, I mean, dancing to me feels like it just, I come alive. It nourishes my soul. I realized that actually years later, but 
all I wanted to do was find a way to live as a dancer, to be a professional dancer. Um, that, so that, that was, I didn't have any other clarity or desire for any other profession. I had no idea. I had no idea how one would choose. I didn't know, you know, whether I should go to college and what major I should choose or anything like that. That was the only thing I knew very clearly. I loved it with a deep passion. I came alive when I was doing it and that's all I wanted to do. But I never became a professional dancer. Why not? Um, so hopefully by now I've established that I, I value my dad and his advice very, very much. Um, and he meant very well. But he said to me, that's, that's not a profession, <laughs> dancing like that. You know, that's very difficult to make a living that way. It's like a hobby. You know, there are some people, you know, you, you have a smart brain, you're ambitious, you, you can make a life for yourself, you can go to college and do something else. Leave that for people who don't really have very many other aptitudes and let them try to struggle through that, you know, but it's like, there's so few ways that you can make a living dancing and it's so competitive that he advised against it. And, you know, my one regret in life, which helped me learn about the value of using regret as a, as a compass, is that I can never try again. I, that, that's a youth-based window of opportunity. I mean, certainly there's older people living as dance instructors or whatever, but, you know, you and I both know that's not, that's not what I was looking for. I, I wanted to perform. I wanted to compete. I, I didn't mind teaching, but I wanted to be a dancer. And, and I loved it. And I never can get that chance again. And I never tried. I just sort of took a lower risk. Uh, I, I took the lower risk option, you know, and I, and I said, well, that sounds pragmatic and practical, which are things that I value. And I'm not a big risk taker, naturally. I'm not. So it seemed like that was not a smart thing to do. So I didn't do it. And I stopped actually at 19. I completely stopped ballroom dancing two things going on in my brain right now. One is this idea of risk taking coming back around and saying, I'm actually not naturally wired to be a risk taker yet. I moved my family to California. I am talking about how, what's the worst that can happen and to be, you know, develop a relationship with the risk taking. So uh, maybe let's start there rather than stack these questions. Uh, how do you make sense of, of that? Because that was kind of surprising. That was a curveball that I wasn't expecting. Well, you know, sometimes there's, there's values that, that are, I, I'm, I don't know if I'm going to say this right, but it's, it's aspirational. I think all of us can have things we aspire to that we see in others, we admire in others, and maybe that's not part of our natural package, but I believe we can learn, we can adapt, we can adopt those if we if they hold value, right? And I would say risk taking and also uh, wrapped with that as being more optimistic are things that I value very highly, but that don't come that naturally to me. Um, I, my mom is more of that kind of a person. She probably had that influence on me too. She's more pragmatic. She's more um, uh, measured. She, she, you know, she's less one of those people like throw it to the winds and go for it. So I, I think she balanced my dad really well. And um, I, I probably provide that for my spouse, who's, who's very much more 
of that optimist and that risk taker than I am. And I, I probably chose him because I admire that and ascribe and aspire to it. So he helps me a lot. Um, I being intentional, I believe in. So I try to move towards that. I try to be conscious um, as much as I can about the processes that are going on so, so that I can find those kind of limiting thoughts or limiting beliefs and, and, and um, move them to the side or overcome them. And having people in your court who are like that can also, you know, give you someone that you can talk to who can give you a new perspective or embolden you to do things that you naturally maybe would shy from, shy away from. And, and I, I met my spouse when I was 22 and he's definitely helped me in that regard. And then the other thing I was wondering was advice. And so dad gives you this advice and looking back, uh, he'd given you a lot of great advice. Yes. Looking back that specific advice, you use the word regret. It like, maybe that wasn't the best advice for you as you look back on it. I'm curious how you think about advice, especially since you have, you mentioned having kids, um, your work uh, with people. I think advice is a really interesting place to be in um, as you are facilitating and consulting and, and helping people. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on advice from maybe a general standpoint and how you think about it. Well, certainly you want to choose your advisor as well, you know, junk in, junk out. Um, but having, I think diversity of perspectives is valuable. So are you in an echo chamber or do you have people that can give you different ways of looking at things? That's another way to think about advice so that you can kind of triangulate it, if you will. You know, you don't have to seek everybody's advice, but I have maybe a I, I think it's a flaw to some degree that because I'm more cautious than risk taking and also because in my personality being right, doing the right thing is just a strong motivator. I tend to overanalyze. I tend to seek too much advice. I tend to, I think, linger in that seek, advice seeking mode and be too slow to move into the, all right, well, you have enough information, just make a decision and move forward. And again, it's just something that, you know, like all of us are a work in progress. Um, I'm very aware that that's something that I'm, that I'm always working on. And sometimes I'm better at recognizing it. And sometimes I'm not as good at recognizing it, but nonetheless, it is something that I'm making progress with. Um, the same with my clients. You know, I certainly, I, I try very hard to give multiple perspectives or to kind of uh, give people the sense that they're choosing freely, that, you know, that they can consider the options before making the decision that's best for them. And hopefully that they're choosing consciously and intentionally with having considered all of the different options and recognizing the plus sides and the risks. And then, and then you make a, and then you make a call and you do it recognizing that, yeah, it won't be perfect and there's no guarantee. And you know, that, what's the worst that can happen is always really helpful. Like, are you, are you going to die? Is somebody going to die? You know, probably not. So, okay. At some point you say, okay, well, I'm going to go for it and see what happens and learn from it no matter what. Um, so I would say that I the on, on that advice, I don't know. I, you know, I, when you're young, I mean, how many different people do you get advice from and how valuable or, or credible is that advice? I mean, certainly my friends who are my age, I don't think that that's very, 
at that point would have not probably been very credible because they don't have life experience. So I don't think that I had anybody advising me who was in my age group. And at that point in my life, I didn't have too many uh, mentors or other people. My major mentor was my dance teacher. <laughs> she was like my second mom, I would, I would call her because I spent so much time with her and she was important. So I don't, I don't remember if she said to me specifically, you should try for it, but she certainly supported me and believed in me. So those were the inputs I had. It's interesting. I think about advice a lot and I'm always evolving as I think about it. I, first of all, I have clients that will want my advice sometimes. And when they, when they specifically ask me for my opinion, I always try to A, pull out what I heard from them and share what I'm hearing from them rather than just giving them advice in my yeah. role, in my role. Yeah. Um, because I, I just, I'm not sitting in their shoes as much as I'm trying to. I'm, yeah. I'm not. And they're sitting in their own shoes and they yeah. have a better sense for what they should do than I should. I will offer like frameworks and ideas and concepts or research and, hey, here's this, or I'm hearing you're saying, hey, this decision is an eight out of 10. Do you ever see it get into a nine out of 10? Mm -hmm. um, and they're like, eh, probably not. I'm like, okay, then what do you think? would be best for you. Right. So yeah. I, I do, I, I do make sure I'm careful with it. Um, and when I do, I try to make sure that they want it. And the way that I do that is by just asking for permission and Hey, I'm hearing something from you. You mind if I share some thoughts yes. or some ideas I have? Yeah. Um, and I think the mistake people make with advice is often they don't ask for permission. And mm. they just provide the advice when the person that they're talking to is not seeking it um, mm -hmm. at all. And I think of a mentor of mine who recently did this and I, I go back and forth as to whether I should offer them the piece of advice, which is not to give advice without permission and, and sort <laughs> of say to them like, Hey, do you mind if I give you uh, some advice? And, and my advice to them would be, instead of just giving it, just ask them. Yeah. Because I think when you, when you ask for permission, it just opens somebody up in such a different way than when you just provide the advice. So I think it's, a, it's, a, it, it's two ways for me that I think about it. One is how do I react when someone says, hey, I'd like your advice on this, while knowing that they're there. I think you said this in the beginning, they're the genius of themselves. Like they, they know themselves better than anyone. And it's often a trap for you to just give them some yeah. thought, thoughts without having more data and more information. And then two, that the power of asking for permission, I think is something that I'm still trying to do more often. Cause I think it's just a, um, a better place to come from. Yeah. And good coaches, you know, they don't really advise uh, except for when explicitly asked and when they have something that, you know, is, is relevant and concrete, but, I, I agree with you about asking permission. And I also, I just sort of tend to help people think through it, you know, so I, like you said, frameworks, you know, that process of thinking through the decision, I ask questions, you know, well, what's, what, what do you really want? What's the worst that can happen? Have you thought about this? What else have you learned? Who else have you asked? You know, I just sort of help guide people to help them find what's best for them. I don't know what it is. And I don't also, you know, I don't want to live with having guided someone in the wrong direction because they asked me to, 
you know? So for me, the regret of them just kind of blindly doing, I, I think it's lazy. They don't mean to be lazy, you know, but for some people there's fear involved, you know, they're, they're afraid to choose. And so you sort of, you choosing for them or telling them can give them kind of an out, you know, it's yeah. less ownership. Yeah. So ownership. I, I don't blame, believe in that. And the ability to blame. Yeah. Let's, let's go into communication because you're starting to go in there anyway. When did you realize that that was an area that you were interested in and wanted to study and, and learn about? I've always been very curious about people and what makes people tick, but when I had to choose a major, when I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be a dancer then. So let me think of what I could do. I had no idea, no earthly idea what I would really want to study. But um, I, I'm pretty articulate as compared to many people. I um, enjoy learning and studying and curious. So I thought I would go into marketing. Actually, my dad told me that maybe I should go into marketing or advertising again, you know, my biggest advisor he was like you're good with words you're good with ideas you're you know you're good at influencing people maybe you would like doing that so I was like fine so I went into business school at um, University of Maryland and um, you know I think 20 at the time at least 25 percent of the people who tried would after the two-year weed out period would make it so once I made it I was accepted into University of Maryland business school two weeks later I changed my major to communication. Um, I saw many things about the business world, a business degree world that I did not like. I was clear I didn't want to do. And um, I, I was, I had a better idea that I really was interested in the psychology of how people deal with the world um, and, and their decisions and how they communicate with others in a more successful way. I then started to become in, increasingly interested in intercultural communication. Um, no surprise having experienced it myself. You know, it was interesting when you um, interviewed Kevin Lavelle, he was saying that, you know, you should try to send kids to another country as early as possible so that they can see that people think and do things differently. And boy, did I experience that, like, you know, thrown into my face. But, you know, it's so much, it's so easy to see having experienced it, that it's well beyond words and language and semantics. It's much more than that. So that curiosity about, well, how come people from different cultures communicate differently and, and maybe even hold different norms about what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, what's polite, what's not polite, you know, uh, how long should you take to do this versus that um, fascinated me. So that's what I chose to focus on in my undergrad um, with also focused on interpersonal communication. And then I tried working in advertising and PR um, for a year after I graduated undergrad. And that's when I realized that was probably not it for me either. And uh, knowing that I don't know what else to do and that I like studying and learning, I figured, okay, I'll go back to grad school. And I then um, I got a, uh, an assistantship, a teaching assistantship, which helped to pay for my studies while I studied full-time. I also was teaching three different sections of the Introduction to Communication course at the Uni University of Maryland. I had to come up with this, the syllabus, the lectures, the assignments, grade everything. I'm basically just slave labor professor for um, three groups of 25 people each semester and a lot. I learned a lot about what I wanted to do and also what I didn't want to do 
in that scenario. What about advertising and PR did not land with you or resonate with you? I still think that there's a lot of things I could probably enjoy about it, but I think that it was uh, like maybe more detached from the actual communication people. Um, and to some degree, it could be kind of manipulative, you know, kind of, I don't know. I, I just sort of like the touchy-feely aspects of communication, I think, better than, than that. So, and it was probably just that job or whatever, but, you know, I just, like, I knew I didn't want that job, and then I didn't know what else to do, and, you know, I was, gosh, how, how old was I? 21, you know? What, what did I know? So I, was, I just went kind of back to the default of what I knew I did well, and it was fun. And I thought I could learn and that it could help me find a different kind of career. And it did. And what came next career-wise? Well, I thought I might go into academia because I was starting to see this pattern of I, I'm good at teaching all my life. I've always found myself in teaching, in a, in a teaching kind of job or role, even as a kid. Um, I loved learning things and then teaching them to others. And I was also, you know, the, the subject matter was fascinating to me. And in a university setting, you can study more and more and, and read about it and learn about it. And this sort of conveying it into, to other people in a way that clicks for them was, is a strength for me. You know, how, how to explain it differently, how to kind of curate information and then process it and give it to other people in a way that that clicks for them and getting their light bulbs going off. But I saw the inner workings of uh, the department and uh, university careers and understood much more about what it takes to be a professor and the grunt work and the trying to go for tenure and politics. And I was like, oh, heck no, I'm like, this is not for me. And at that point, I also discovered, I did not know this before, but that there is this whole field of training and development where you get to teach adults in corporate settings. And naively at the time, I thought, who were willingly there and eager to learn from you. And I say that kind of in a jaded way because later I found out that many of them also acted like those sophomore and freshman people who were like victims in my class and didn't want to be there and didn't care anything about it. I experienced that from adults in corporate settings as well. But generally, that, that sort of crystallized for me. Okay, I love teaching. I love learning. I love converting that information and helping others learn about it and the subject matter of communication, interpersonal communication, organizational communication, um, intercultural communication, I was passionate about, I loved. So let me make a career out of that. And I got a job and I, oh, so I wanted to be in intercultural training. Um, but that's very hard to get a job right out of school with that. So I understood that I could either become an expert in intercultural and move later into training, or I could become an expert in training and then move later into intercultural. And I chose the latter approach and that move never actually materialized, but you know, life is like that. I mean, you're in a, on a meandering path. You can't always predict where it'll take you, but that was kind of the fork in the road. And I took the fork um, to the side of, okay, let me move into a training and development role. It won't be about communication, but it'll be in an, in an international company um, with people from all over the world and about subject matters relating to different countries. And I went into a training assistant job in a foreign exchange firm. What are some of the keys or techniques or frameworks or tools that unlock great communication? 
when I saw as a kid even that you might be very clear on what's in your mind and when you open your mouth and try to convey that to the other person and they just look at the, look at you bewildered it's not enough it's not enough to know language it's not enough to formulate great structural sentences and it's not enough to just be able to use your voice you have to convey the information in a way that makes sense to the receiver and in order to do that you have to be more knowledgeable about them and what they believe and what they value and what they need and how they prefer to communicate. And that takes curiosity and intentionality. So for me, you know, that's at the core of it. As So I, I work now mostly with leaders and help them become better leaders. Well, if you want someone to follow you willingly and to be committed to you, to your vision, to work hard, to give above and beyond and to trust and for you to be able to trust them, you need to think about how to, how to make information make sense to them in their context and in, and in their mind and in their value structure. You have to be about them, not about you. So empathy, it sounds like, plays a big role in trying to put yourself in their shoes and understanding where they're coming from. Yes, and then the hard work of intentionally translating how you would like to say it, how you prefer people to treat you, what you think is the best, and, and then working to translate that to, okay, well, that's me, but what about them? It's not necessarily the same. You know, I, I sometimes, though I'm not religious and I certainly have never learned Christianity, there is a thing I think comes from Christianity, it's called the golden rule, <laughs> and, um, that says treat others as you would like to be treated. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful maxim because it says, you know, that you should have respect for other people, that you should treat them with dignity. There's an assumption uh, in it that's faulty, which is we all want the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we know that we are, we are different in many more ways than we are the same. Even if we come from the same country and the same region and the same culture and the same religion, there are so many ways in which we're potentially different, even even momentary states that, oh, you know, what ours our mood that day or did we have lunch or not have lunch? Like there's so many ways in which we could see things differently and understand things differently that it's naive at best and um, just unhelpful <laughs> at worst. So the platinum rule is better, which means, says that you treat people as they would like to be treated, but that's harder because you don't always know. And so seeking to understand how others like to understand, to learn how they prefer to be communicated with. Now, that doesn't mean you put yourself to the, I'm, I'm talking and you can stop me at any time. I, I feel strongly about this also based on my philosophy that some people take this to the extreme. So people throw around the term servant leadership, which triggers me. Um, I don't believe in selflessness and sacrifice. I believe in win-win. So you take all of that together, you, you must uphold your own values and integrity. But most of the time, working hard to adapt what you believe, what you need to the language of the other person's mind does not require you to put your own ethics to the side. When it does, you shouldn't do it. All right. This, this just got really interesting. So first of all, treat others how they want to be treated was told to me after... I stopped working 
for your brother. Hold on one second. My generator just went on. I'm going to turn Uh-oh. that off. Hold on one second. All right, I'm back. Uh, <laughs> hopefully it's not too loud. I had the window open to get some fresh air, but this okay. is what working at home does. You find out when the uh, yes. when it goes off, which is <laughs> I think at three o'clock. Yep, there we go. Okay. Um, but my second boss, after I worked for your brother, uh, I was having a rough time with one of my clients and I was working in sales and he just was not treating me with any dignity. And I talked back <laughs> and I come back to the office and uh, that client had called my boss to say that I was disrespectful. And I, that was where he delivered the line of, hey, Brian, your job is to sort of stay curious and treat him how he wants to be treated and find a way to understand how he wants to be treated. And so uh, that's stuck with me uh, for a long, long time. And I think it's, it's really sage advice. Um, on the servant leader side, you've got me really thinking because that's definitely a term that I use. Um, I really pride myself on trying to be in service to other people. And does, is there something in the back of my mind that also says, if I do that, it'll come back around? Sure. But that's not the primary reason for me to do it. Uh, The primary reason for me to do it is because I think it's my job. I think that's like, what I'm supposed to be doing is to serve others. And then as leaders go, when we talk about servant leadership, to me, the perspective is that their job as a leader is to serve their people and to um, think about ways in which they can be in service to their people rather than their people just being in service to them. Yes. And I say all that by saying I'm also obsessed with win-win and I live my life trying to not just find win-win, but win-win-win-win-win-win-win. I think that there's so many opportunities to seek that out. So I'd love to continue that dialogue because you're having me think a little bit more about the words that I'm choosing. And, um, you know, I I think vocabulary matters. Yeah, um, it does. And it is semantics. Okay. But here's something that I learned and it, it does come from that philosophy I was mentioning earlier. Always check your premise. So I think most people are good. I think most people are well-meaning. I think most people who use the term servant leadership are well-meaning. To me, servant is like a slave. Mm. I just believe that everyone must be free to choose. Everyone should only be in situations that they choose to be in. And in those cases, they're in those situations because there is a trade of value. Back to the philosophy, um, the trader principle. By the way, so I'm like pussyfooting around and I might as well name it. You know, it's, it's the philosophy of, of objectivism. The idea of the trader principle, and people like to take it and mangle it out of context and make it seem like you are about being manipulative. You, you mentioned this, you know, I want to be ser- in service to people and I don't want to make it feel like I'm always doing it in order to gain something. I agree with that. I don't think that you should have strings attached to being helpful and in service. And I also think that leaders are in service, but servant and service are different. Now, is it just semantics? Probably for most people. But because I think that if you go back to the court, the premise, if you dig back, and I think, again, most people are not thinking about it deeply enough, but it unfortunately guides you consciously or subconsciously, and I believe in being intentional. 
Do you consciously believe that any person should ever put themselves completely aside in a situation and perform an act of service that is sacrificial to themselves? Well, most people don't think about that in a business context, but that's what is at the core of being selfless and being a servant. But I don't believe that anyone should sacrifice themselves and further, I don't think most people need to. I think there is a way. I believe in win-win because I believe that there are so many ways in which we're different, but that there are so many ways, if we became more curious, that we can find overlapping interests, that we can collaborate, that we can find something that meets your needs and my needs so that no one walks away feeling like they're, they don't, that, they're, that they're, something was negated about their freedom. Um, their choice, their ability to be a free person in the world. I don't ever think that as a leader, as an organization, as anybody, you should ever leave people in that mode. You should always just leave them either in the same way or better than they were. It really, not- has, it really has me thinking, like, I created a mission statement a decade ago, and it was to help others enjoy success, therefore I'll enjoy success. And yeah. so what was clear for me then was that, I want to be successful. I want to help others be successful. If I can help others be successful, I know that my business will will thrive. And I always used to say the work that I do is selfish because I found out at a young age that my addiction was to helping others and the fulfillment that I got, the um, high that I got from, from doing that was because of how it made me felt. And that's why I did it. Yes. And then a couple of years ago, I pivoted it to help others unlock possibility and or potential and enjoy success. I took myself out of it. And the reason I took myself out of it was because I felt like as a coach, it really wasn't about me. It was really about my clients and meeting them where they were. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm wrestling with this in my head right now, and I really yeah. appreciate you making me think deeper about it because I think it's really important. Well, sure, and and this is something that if people talk about people talk about this for hours and days and no, I weeks love and it. months, I love we it. can't do it in a short amount of time. But I will say to you this: I believe in your first mission and the second mission, and I think they're the same. I just think that the second well, I don't know you well enough, but I hope. Let's just say I hope for you and believe that they're the same. I think that you're just not articulating the second part in your mission because that's not, you know, um, you know this from, from being a salesperson, you do not convince people to buy anything or to do anything by telling them what's in it for you, the salesperson. Because they don't give a hoot about that. What they care about is what's in it for them. So does it mean that there should be nothing in it for you? No, it's just not the part that you need to articulate it probably isn't like you don't need to guide yourself with that first. It's more about the win-win. So it can become an unstated part of your mission, but you must recognize that when you feel, full, you know, I was saying there's a value. The trader principle and the win-win principle says that there is value exchange, but value like beauty is in the eye of the beholder. There is not one way to measure value and there is not a universal way to measure value and there can be different kinds of value in different situations but the only person who can choose whether something is a value to them or not is the person that is receiving that thing and they can choose whether it value is a value or not so as a salesperson as a leader as an influencer as someone who's helping you need to figure out what's a value to them and how can i help them see that there is a that value can be gained from this thing that i'm suggesting but on the other side of the equation, you, as the 
service provider, as the helper. There needs to be a value for you too, for you to engage in that freely over and over and over because it is in your instinct and it makes sense. So when something is giving you negative value, no value or detriment in the short term, let's say, maybe there is a long-term value, right? Sometimes we sacrifice something in the short term for a long a long-term benefit. We know it's it's sort of um, an investment, a long-term investment. I mean, that's fine. There doesn't need to be a tit for tat. And sometimes it might be an unidentified future value that you don't know that you're going to receive, but you believe that overall, since your experience has been that when I help and I'm generous, overall, I also receive that kind of vibe from the world. And I'm not a woo-woo person, but I've seen that that works. Yeah, so that's that's big for me. And it's not karma. A lot of people, yeah. like, it's karma or it's meant to be. No, I just believe like you do the right thing and I'm, I'm young. And I think we even talked about this on the, our phone call. Like playing the long game has always yeah. worked out better for me than playing yeah. the short game. However, there does come a point where like you need to make tough decisions uh, to value your time, to yeah. value yourself, to give yeah. yourself space and make sure you're taking yeah. care of yourself. And um, so that's something that I've gotten better at saying no to certain yeah. things that yeah. are not uh, valuable necessarily to me. And then the last thing I'll say, and then I'll, I'll let you riff is, uh, you know, I just, during this pandemic, uh, I very rarely give away free coaching. I, I, I did it when I was first starting out and I found it to actually not be very fulfilling. And for a lot of reasons, just, I, I think coaching is valuable and should be paid accordingly. Um, mm -hmm. but during this, I, I sort of sat back the last month and was like, what can I do to just be in service to people? And so I just did some free coaching sessions and it was so interesting, Haleli. Most of the people I did it with, the first thing they said is like, hey, what can I also do for you? Yeah. Um, almost all of them. And so I'm even thinking about the power dynamics and what's at play. And, and when you don't allow people to also help you, you're robbing them of the opportunity to feel valued um, yes. and, and to feel powerful. Yeah. And so I'm almost thinking of like, is it service leadership? Is it, is it yeah. like, cause I agree with you that word servant, I could see where you're going with that. And the idea that I'm just supposed to make the person that's inferior, um, you know, there is a, a lack of autonomy there that in that word that I think is, is worth is worth thinking about for sure. Yeah. So I'm just really grateful that you brought it up. Sure. And again, I really believe most people don't think about it that deeply and don't mean it in a detrimental way, but because I believe in concepts, you know, and I believe that everything has like a premise underneath it, I choose, I try to choose very intentionally. And even just that fulfillment that you feel or that, you know, that, that sense of gratitude by giving gratitude or that, that sense of happiness that you were able to help someone and, and see them smile. Like those, are, that's a value. That's a value, which means that you chose freely to give something to someone and you, and you received something in return. And who else could possibly measure whether that return was worth enough to offset the cost of doing something, of giving something. But like you said, everything does have a cost. There, is an inf there isn't an infinite amount of money or time or knowledge. I mean, there is always a cost. So if you're conscious about it and intentional about it, then you know that you sometimes have to say no, because if you could, you would do everything for everyone. But since you can't, then you have to make smart choices about it. But even still, I don't, 
you know, there, there is no, I think that the, like the resource of giving kindness, of giving um, compliments, of giving thanks, like that's the kind of resource that's never ending. Like there's never going to be less of it because you gave it. Mm-hmm. So I, I very much believe in giving giving first and giving often. And a lot of times people who share my philosophy are wrongly described as, you know, the word selfish. The word selfish is used in a negative connotation to to make it seem like it's a person who doesn't believe in generosity and doesn't believe in helping others. And that can't be farther from the truth. But I do not believe in generosity at the point of a gun. I love it. Mm-hmm. Money for me has become- Must be freely chosen. Yeah. Money for me has become a scoreboard. Number one, uh, allows me to sort of stay competitive. Uh, and I work with highly competitive people. So it does that. And then it also keeps me from myself and, um, like humanity is definitely a value for me and wanting to make this world a better place. Yes. And so, uh, I also have two kids and a wife and a life and friends. And I like to watch, crappy TV every once in a while or watch a sports show or go on vacation or, you know, just, just let to your dad's point, like live and, uh, you know, got one shot at it. So I think for me, money has also been an opportunity for me to limit what I do, especially when it comes to traveling. I know we talked about this, um, on our phone call, which is, like, I don't really want to travel much these days with my little kids at home and missing little moments that just happen organically. And, uh, well, right now, everybody is sort of shut down. But yeah. um, for me, I, I increased all my rates to travel because if I was going to do it, I needed a uh, some sort of structure to keep me from just saying yes. And uh, same thing with speaking fees. I because they take a lot of energy out of me and uh, they, they, they take a lot of preparation and a lot of work. So um, yeah, I think you're just, you're, you're striking a nerve with me and a chord with me. And it, the odds are that if it's striking with me, then hopefully it's striking with the people that are listening to this, give people an idea of how you work and, and what business is like. And um, if they wanted to learn more about what you're doing and what you're up to and, and learn more about this stuff, where, where could they do that? Thank you. So I, Develop leaders that people actually want to follow because that just the name leader, the title does not make that so. And I also know we all have seen in, in the world of, of organizational life that many people suffer under bad managers. And most people, in fact, when they leave organizations, they're leaving a manager. Well, well-meaning organizations are full of actually well-meaning bad managers <laughs> Most organizations, or many organizations, I should say, and especially organizations that are sort of experiencing explosive growth, that they've, you know, they're, they're big enough that they have layers of leadership, but they're not that big that they already have an approach to dealing with it, are in a place where they kind of throw people into leadership roles without very much preparation or intentional training or, or, or support. And it's sort of like throw them off the cliff and see if they can fly. It's not the best way. I also believe that leaders are made, not born. So back to the situation, lots of good, good people with great skills are leaving good organizations because someone is a bad manager because no one told them how to be a good manager. And that's why I tried to inter- to interject myself. So it shows up in a couple of different ways. One, an organization that is aware of this pain point and interested in solving it 
will reach out to me to help with consulting project that I can help them build an intentional, mindful, strategic leadership development approach. And um, I am sometimes involved in the application of some of the uh, interventions that are part of that approach and sometimes not. And that shows up in speaking, speaking at conferences and at corporate meetings about topics related to leadership, emotional intelligence, communication, and also conducting workshops and learning events and team retreats that help to build skills and build stronger teams in organizations, whether I help them with a strategy or whether they already have something, you know, they're big enough or they've got that down and now they just need to do specific skill building. So um, that is something that my company, my company's Talent Grow, which I started in 2006. And that's something that we offer. Um, on the side, I have uh, been a, an author of, of, uh, author of two books, a blogger, and a podcaster. I've uh, run my podcast called The Talent Grow Show for the last five years. And that's where I provide free information about how to become a better leader. And of course, it's free, but it's intentional and value adding for me as well. And I love doing that. And everything is found on my website, which is talentgrow.com. I love it. And you ended it with that idea of a podcast being value added for you. And I'll, I'll just say the same for myself that this has been a labor of love. And sometimes people ask me, Brian, how are you still doing this? And how are you doing so many of these and putting it all out there? And uh, for me, I, I get a lot out of it. And I certainly got a ton out of this conversation. And, and then it, to me, the win, win, win is hopefully you got something out of it. And then the listener hopefully, you know, broadcasting this out to others uh, is helpful to them. So um, yes. I'm on Twitter at Brian Levinson, Instagram, intentional underscore performers. You can listen to all these conversations at intentionalperformers.com. Haleli, I know you're on Twitter as well. Where can people find you there? Yeah, I'm pretty active on most social media. On Twitter, I'm Haleli Azulai and also Talent Grow Show. <clears throat> I'm on LinkedIn under both of those names, on Facebook under both of those names. And on Instagram, under both of those names, on Pinterest, I think I'm just Haleli Azulai. And I, I would love to connect with people and be in touch, be of service to them, um, and start a conversation. Awesome. Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and knowledge and uh, looking forward to meeting you in person next time you come to DC, which who knows when that will be, but um, we'll try to make it happen. So thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks for inviting me and for allowing me uh, the opportunity to have this interesting conversation, Brian. Continued success to you. Thank you for listening to Intentional Performers with Brian Levinson. Here is this week's episode gem. People throw around the term servant leadership, which triggers me. Um, I don't believe in selflessness and sacrifice. I believe in win-win. So... You take all of that together, you, you must uphold your own values and integrity. But most of the time, working hard to adapt what you believe, what you need to the language of the other person's mind does not require you to put your own ethics to the side. When it does, you shouldn't do it. <laughs>